Out of Austin, Texas, you're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is day 16 of 100 Days of Colin. We are almost there. Almost there. Day 100. It's coming up soon. In 16 days. Ah! We're going to be done. Done with 100 Days of Colin. Ah! So I am going to invite all the people, tell them where the show is happening. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Okay, we are reading Chapter 10 of Nils Melser's The Trial of Julian Assange. Let's see what we learned today as we turn to the tome. Let's just log in here. And here we go. Australia, the glaring absentee. My press release of 31 May of 2019 made waves. The interviews piled up, and all of the major media organizations ran at least an online article or a radio interview. Much more difficult were the mainstream television broadcasters. Both BBC World News and Sky News, the two most influential British television news channels, initially wanted a live video interview via Skype in the late afternoon. However, both broadcasters took their interviews off the air immediately after their first live broadcast and left no trace of them on the web. My findings that both the British government and the mainstream media have been complicit in Assange's persecution and torture, as it did not appear to fit their preferred narrative. By contrast, the video interviewed, requested by the Australian public television broadcaster ABC, remained accessible online. While I had described Australia as a glaring absence in the Assange case, I did not have reliable evidence for Australian complicity in his torture and persecution, and, therefore, had not included Canberra in my official intervention. I knew that Assange had been very critical of his home country. Among other things, he had accused Australian authorities of supporting U.S. criminal investigations against WikiLeaks and himself. He had also pointed to media reports that the Australian government had considered cancelling his passport in order to facilitate his prosecution by the United States. Given the military alliance between Washington and Canberra, as well as the country's long-standing membership in the Five Eyes intelligence cooperation between the U.S., Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, none of this would have come as a surprise. Assange certainly had reason not to trust his government and repeatedly rejected Australian offers to, of consular assistance during his time in the Ecuadorian embassy. As questionable as Australians, Australia's abandonment of their own national may be from a moral perspective, I did not have sufficient evidence to speak of a legal co-responsibility co of the Australian government for the political persecution and ill treatment of Assange. So during an interview with the Sydney Morning, Morning Herald, published on 31 May 2019, I described the role of the Australian government as follows. Australia is a glaring absence in this case. They're just not around, as if Assange was not an Australian citizen. That is not the correct way of dealing with that. Unfortunately, the SMH publisher, the interview with, sorry, the SMH published the interview with a misleading title, Assange, a victim of torture, 
and Australia shares blame, says UN expert. I had never blamed Australia for Assange's torture, and that was an immaterial now, but the damage was done. The Australian government was irritated and, on the same day, released a press statement of its own. We reject any suggestion by the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture that the Australian government is complicit in psychological torture or has shown a lack of consular support for Mr. Assange. The Special Rapporteur has not been in contact with the Australian government to raise these concerns directly. While I had not, in fact, accused Australia of complicity in torture or lack of consular support, my remarks seemed to have triggered the sensitivity of a political leadership that was fully aware of its failure to protect its national from serious abuse. As detailed earlier, the Australian government has never sought to use its considerable political leverage as a major ally of the United States and the United Kingdom to end Assange's persecution. Instead of addressing the case on the political level, where it could have been resolved quickly and effectively, Canberra demonstratively, demonstratively, sorry, excuse me, exercised restraint and limited itself to the merely technical and administrative level of consular services. In the world of diplomatic relations, this means that the Australian government needed a modicum of window dressing for domestic consumption, but never intended to fundamentally challenge the dehumanization and persecution of Assange by its allies. As long as Assange himself did not trust his own government sufficiently to, to at least accept its consular services, there clearly was no basis for me to try to negotiate a diplomatic solution involving Australia behind the scenes. Whatever the Australian government may have done to protect Assange's interest in the past decade, none of it has contributed anything to fundamentally changing his situation. Although a group of about two dozen Australian MPs have vehemently campaigned for Assange's release and repatriation, and two of them, Andrew Wilkie and George Christensen, even traveled to London in February 2020 to visit him in prison, they were unable to persuade their government to change its mind. During the extradition hearing at Westminster's Magistrates Court in September 2020, which lasted several weeks, three of the few available the a few available seats in the courtroom had been reserved for diplomatic representatives from the Australian High Commission in London. Outside the court, starting long before dawn, countless journalists, foreign politicians, representative of Amnesty International, and other independent observers waited in vain to be admitted to the courtroom every single day. By contrast, the cushy Australian seats remained empty every single day. Given the obvious indifference of the Australian government towards Assange's rights, there clearly was no potential for a constructive dialogue. Here too, the self-perception of the political leadership had very little to do with reality. Germany, between appeasement and complicity. Governments that have no direct connection to the persecution or person of Julian Assange generally do not comment on his case at all or only very cautiously. Remarkably, this is true even across traditional political blocs so that Assange receives hardly any public support from countries like Russia, China, Iran, or Venezuela, which rarely miss an opportunity to criticize the West. This has nothing to do with Assange's person, of course, but with the fact that the basic idea and methodology of his organization, WikiLeaks, 
is perceived as an equal threat by all governments alike. If we have to pick one example to be discussed in this context, Germany is perhaps the ideal choice, both for its co commonalities with other countries and for its particular or peculiar specificities. First, Germany is a country with sufficient political, economic, and military clout to directly influence the four states involved in Assange's persecution. Second, Germany is a country that has had its own experience of seeing a highly developed society slide into dictatorship, surveillance state, and self-destruction. And third, forced to face the consequences of the system failure, Germany has tried to deal legally, morally, and politically with the burden of this past with a rigor and resolve which, despite imperfections, remain unique in the world. Tragically, however, Germany remains unable to effectively call out similar developments in allied states or even to publicly express a clear-cut opinion on them. Berlin, 7 October 2020 during a parliamentary session in Bundestag, German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas threatens targeted sanctions against Russia over the alleged poisoning of opposition political Alexei Navalny with a nerve agent belonging to sorry a nerve agent belonging to the Novichok Group. The minister affirms that the development, production, and possession of chemical weapons is a quote blatant violation of international law adding that Russia itself should have great interest in solving the crime, end quote. However, according to Moss, Moscow has so far not complied with any of the German government's demands and questions in this case. Unless Russia provides the required clarifications, he says, targeted and proportionate sanctions against those responsible will be unavoidable. Clear messaging from Berlin is widely welcomed because governments hardly ever find the courage to take such uncompromising stance. Later, during the same session, Moss is asked about the case of Julian Assange and in particular about my official findings that his treatment violates the universal prohibition of torture, another blatant violation of international law. Suddenly, the minister becomes significantly less combative. According to Maas, the German government has no information indicating that there have been violations of international law in both the accommodation and the treatment of Julian Assange. The minister believes that Assange deserves a trial in accordance with the rule of law, but sees no reason to accuse our British partners of any failure or whatsoever in this case. So unlike Russia, the United Kingdom is not being confronted with quote-unquote questions and demands from the German government and need not expect German sanctions should it fail to investigate the persecution of Assange and to provide the required clarifications. Contrary to the minister's claim that he had no information indicating any violations of international law against Assange, I had personally briefed his ministry in the matter a year earlier, on 26 November 2019, during a visit to Berlin. On their own initiative, the Human Rights Division of the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs had invited me for a meeting at their offices to discuss the Assange case. To my surprise, however, my interlocutors had no intention of discussing the conclusions of my investigation 
or the measures that could be taken by the German government in order to positive, positively influence the treatment of Assange by the British and American authorities. T. In fact, no one in the room had read any of my official communications on the case, and throughout the meeting no one showed the slightest interest in learning about their content. Rather, my interlocutors sat there with grave faces and expressed concern that my engagement in the Assange case undermined not only the credibility of my mandate, but even the continued existence of the UN human rights mechanisms as a whole. For these human rights bureaucrats, the fact that Assange was being held in solitary confinement for months on end, that he was deprived of his human dignity and denied the right to prepare his defense, did not seem to arouse any doubts as to the lawfulness of the British proceedings. Instead, they met my objections with the same blank stares as the government spokespersons who, at the federal press conference, BPK, dismiss any question about the government's position in the Assange case with stony faces and tortured phraseology, a veritable reality show in willful blindness. London, September 2020. One of the many witnesses who testified in favor of Assange in the U.S. extradition trial was a German-Lebanese dual national named Khalid al-Masri. On 31 December 2003, he was arrested by police in Macedonia and handed over to the CIA. In Skopje and in a black site in Afghanistan, he was humiliated and tortured by CIA agents for four months until they were persuaded of his innocence and abandoned him somewhere in the, on a deserted road in Albania, without any apology, compensation, or even sufficient funds for him to travel home. After several unsuccessful proceedings against the Macedonian authorities, the European Court of Human Rights found in 2012 that El Masri had been tortured by Macedonians and, of, and U.S. officials and ordered Macedonia to pay 60,000 euros of, I think it's euros, in compensation. So the torture being a serious crime, the German federal prosecutor's office issued 13 arrest warrants against the CIA agents allegedly responsible for the abuse of El Masri. However, the German government subsequently refused to transmit the required extradition request to the United States, a non-justiciable discretionary decision by the executive branch the German administrative court found. In reality, the German government's refusal was a clear violation of the Convention Against Torture. That treaty leaves, no, leaves states no discretion whatsoever in determining whether or not to prosecute torture, but unequivocally obliges them to do so in every single instance. Further investigation of the case by a parliamentary committee of inquiry was reportedly rendered impossible because the German government refused to provide evidence and prohibited other witnesses from testifying, as shown by diplomatic cables of the U.S. Embassy in Berlin that were later published by WikiLeaks. The United States put the German government under massive pressure to not allow this extradition request to go forward. Here, too, the German government did not ask questions or make demands. Again. Germany did not threaten the United States with sanctions despite the flagrant violation of international law, and moreover, the torture of El Masri was not just an unfortunate, isolated blunder, but stood for hundreds of similar cases. 
It stood for a firmly established policy of serious violations of intentional law, sorry, international law, by the United States from unlawful kidnapping and systematic torture in secret prisons scattered around the world to countless drone strikes coordinated from Germany's Romstein air base and killing individuals on mere suspicion. An average of two attacks per month under President Bush, rising to five per week under Obama and three per day under Trump. There is a point at which political appeasement becomes a under international law. How closely German security policy is entangled with that of its Western partners behind the scenes cannot, sorry, can be seen not only in such individual cases, but particularly clearly in relation to the NSA scandal. After the Snowden leaks revealed the targeted surveillance of top German politicians by the NSA in 2013, there were public protests and calls for a German-American no-spy agreement for the establishment of an investigative committee and for criminal proceedings regarding the surveillance of Chancellor Angel Merkel, Merkel sorry, her personal phone. The German government initially pretended to support these demands. Once the dust had settled and public interest had waned, however, real politic quietly took over again. The criminal proceedings were dropped for lack of evidence. The no-spy agreement was buried without a sound bite, and the investigative committee was prevented from questioning its most important witness, Edward Snowden, in Berlin. In order for Snowden to come to Berlin, he needed a non-refoulement guarantee from the German government against his onward extradition to the United States. Apparently, this would have put too much strain on the German government's sensitive transatlantic relations. This complacent attitude was not even changed by the WikiLeaks revelations of summer of 2015, which provided new evidence that numerous top politicians in Germany had been systematically surveilled by the NSA for many years, including verbatim transcripts of wiretapped conversations of the Chancellor. In sum, the German political leadership chose to sweep the biggest surveillance scandal in world history under the carpet, along with their right to truth, transparency, and privacy of their own people and to emphasize the indispensable character of the transatlantic partnership instead. Since the crypto leaks revelations of February 2020, this transatlantic partnership is probably better described as complicity in the field of intelligence collection too. Via the trustworthy facade of a Swiss company named Crypto AG, which was secretly owned jointly by the CIA and German Federal Intelligence Services, BND, Germany and the U.S. had been selling manipulated cipher devices for, more, for decades to more than 100 countries. This allowed them to systematically wiretap the communications of well over half of all governments in the world. When after more than 20 years, the Swiss National Intelligence Services, NDB, finally discovered the German-American espionage scheme, it did not put a stop to it. Instead, NDB made a deal with the CIA, extending access to the compromised devices to Swiss intelligence agents, causing considerable long-term damage to Switzerland's credibility as a neutral, secure, and trustworthy country. It was not until 30 December 2020 that the German government's human rights commissioner, Barbel Koffler, could bring herself to issue a press release on the Assange case. 
The commissioner stated that she personally, not the German government or Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as a government spokesperson hastened to specify, was following Assange's extradition trial with concern. She reminded the United Kingdom of its obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, also with a view to the possible sentence and the conditions of detention. The commissioner's statement was published on the very last working day before Monday 4, January 2021, the day when Judge Barris Barrister at Westminster Magistrates Court in London was scheduled to render her first instance judgment in Assange's extradition case. Too little, too late. Too little to be taken seriously and too late to influence the decision. Worlds away from the fighting talk of the German government in the case of Navalny. The Common Denominator my dialogue with the four states directly responsible for Assange's persecution, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Ecuador, and the United States, did not end with their initial responses. I was not prepared to accept their excuses, and so wrote an individual follow-up communication to each of the four governments. In these letters, I diligently considered any responses to put forward by the authorities, reiterated the need for an official investigation of the case, and explain my findings and reasoning based on more detailed arguments of law and fact. The letters were sent to the United States and Sweden on 12 September, to Ecuador on 2 October, and to the United Kingdom on 29 October 2019. While Quito responded with another verbal volley, Stockholm simply referred back to its initial response and stated that the government had no further observations on the case. London and Washington failed to respond at all. It was now inescapably clear that nothing more could be achieved through the diplomatic channels at my disposal. The involved states had made it understood that they did not wish to enter into any constructive dialogue with my office and that they considered the matter closed. I was about to make it understood that I did not. I had seen too much to be able to simply look the other way and pretend nothing had happened. The dysfunctions I had witnessed went far beyond the Assange case and were indicative of a systemic failure of major proportions. To be sure, the official misconduct described in this book from the persecution of Assange by the United States, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Ecuador, to the evasiveness of Australia, and the willful blindness of Germany is neither unique to these countries nor proof of an evil conspiracy. The poli policy of small compromises where any moral dilemma is always resolved by following the path of least resistance, and where human dignity, transparency, and accountability are always the second or third priority, is universal. This is the globally prevailing operating system of any human society, any state, organization, or company. This is the unspectacular material from which the most atrocious crimes and the greatest human tragedies are made. Through appeasement of the powerful, denial of responsibility, and bureaucratic complicity. This is what Hannah Arendt so aptly described as the banality of evil. As much as we may be tempted to blame and moralize the cause of the, the systemic failure of states to uphold the rule of law, whether in the case of Julian Assange or in others, is not moral in nature, but deeply rooted in neurobiology and social psychology. As I argued in my report to the UN General Assembly in October 2020, even complex political decision-making processes 
are chiefly driven by unconscious emotions primarily aimed at securing individual and collective self-preservation and avoiding potentially threatening conflicts. Uncomfortable truths and moral dilemmas are suppressed or glossed over through various forms of self-deception. The result of this self-deceptive process is always a moral black hole in which corruption and inhumanity can be practiced without being perceived as such. In the case of Julian Assange, these uncomfortable truths are needless to say the publications of WikiLeaks. They shine a spotlight on the shameful reality of international relations, on the war crimes and human rights abuses, the corruption, the lies, and the rotten compromises. The accuracy of the leaked information cannot be disputed, because the documents have been produced by the authorities themselves. But instead of facing this reality and making the necessary corrections, the exposed states preferred to change the subject of the conversation. They teamed up to snatch the spotlight from the hands of the messenger and turn it against him. Assange, rapist, hacker, spy, and narcissist. Not even a proper journalist. A traitor who risked human lives. The world public and the media were grateful because it is much easier to mock and scapegoat an isolated individual than to question the integrity of one's own authorities and indeed of the entire political and economic governance system. It is much harder to take political responsibility and to initiate the enormous global governance reforms that must be undertaken if we are ever to achieve the peaceful, just and sustainable societies envisaged in foundational documents such as the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Given the categorical refusal of the involved states to engage in constructive dialogue with my office, the only way for me to make a difference was to confront the wider public with its own self-deception, the same self-deception which had initially distorted my own perception of the case. This would not be easy because for the past decade, the official narrative about Assange had become deeply rooted in public opinion and relied predominantly on claims and allegations that could not be easily verified or debunked. But one event would come significantly to facilitate my task, the collapse of the Swedish case in November of 2019. And that's the end of the chapter, my friends. We have about four minutes before we wrap. Um, would anybody like to come up here and discuss the contents of chapter 10. We have with us Miranda, Peter, Dimitro, and Shane. So, hello Miranda! Glad to see you back, you and your brown dog. So, Shane has been here before and spoken, I think, once. I think I could, I could just use this time efficiently to promote my next program. Okay, so tomorrow we're going to be discussing the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, we're going to be talking about the colonious problem and the problem of narcotic squatters in the United States, in Texas, and other places around the southern, southeastern U.S. Um, there is a problem there, and it is being ignored by major news outlets, and it's not being acknowledged by the authorities. These people are being permitted to stay under the auspices that they are legitimate citizens. Uh, but they are known drug dealers and these, is, these are provable matters. 
they are not legal citizens. Uh, they're not um, migrant workers who, you know, are here buying property to to produce, you know, labor and then move back to Mexico, which is what the colonias were originally for. They were seasonal camp encampments uh, or properties so that people could come in, work, and then leave. Um, <clears throat> the laws built around such things were for seasonal workers coming in from Mexico. And the early, like, through the first 50 years of the 1900s, so, uh, those laws are being manipulated, of course, and distorted um, by narcotics uh, salesmen from the, <laughs> at the U.S.-Mexico border to live in massive haciendas and then construct uh, shanty towns, uh, sell them, quote-unquote, to people who owe them uh, large amounts of trafficking debt, and then... When they are no longer viable as debtors, they are uh, kicked out of their homes and the, the shanties are resold to other coyote debtors on a routine basis. So, quote unquote, sold. Like, you can live there for as long as we tolerate you. You can pay us some money and, and you'll live there until we kick you out and then you're just kind of out. <laughs> so, it's not a fair system. Uh, it's important to know about it because there's also, you know, routine narcotics chicanery that's going on, you know, like murder and uh, drug dealing, prostitution, uh, and then it does bleed over into the community. Uh, Phil Drake, who will be my guest tomorrow, has been assaulted repeatedly, and then he was finally driven off of his farm. He's intended to make this a national issue. So we'll be asking important and relevant uh, national and international policy questions that have uh, mostly homeland security related implications. <laughs> we'll get into the surveillance and we'll get into the TSA and, and DHS policy more generally, but that, that's the orbit of where we're going with the interview tomorrow. So um, that will air at 3 p.m. and then on Friday we have a special treat. We have um, Kathy Guillermo. She'll be here to talk to us about uh, PETA and why it's not okay to test, uh, you know, test for monkey brains so that it's supposed to emulate your brains and how I guess similar technologies or proposed technologies are going to be used upon, say, Neuralink. That's the upcoming integration system. You know, it has to be tested. They're testing it somehow. How are they testing it? They're probably testing it on animals. And if they're not testing it on animals, they're testing it on soldiers. So how are they going to know it works? So we're going to get there, we're going to talk to PETA about it, like, well, what exactly are they doing to these animals? And then this is how the sausage is made. So stick with us, that's going to be 4 p.m. on Friday. Thank you for joining the Unsanctioned Citizen. Please go promote the show. We need more listeners. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. 
Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. 